I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media Television, Channel 98. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide people with an encouraging space in which to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity. Using on-stage TV, radio, and public venues, and offering workshops in the art and practice of storytelling, we aim to help people bridge differences and build understanding and respect for all. While we do encourage and support the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance that we give to tellers, this is not a competition. We don't have any ranking or scoring or judging. We truly believe that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us all and bind us together, and that's why we're here. Our shows have a theme that helps get people's minds turning on what they have to share on a subject, and tonight's theme is family gatherings. We're going to hear from five tellers tonight, starting with Dane Peters, then Judith Rubenstein, Michael Lang, Kathy Boss, and Sharon Jones. They each will have 10 minutes for their story, and our MC Pat Spaulding, introduce, um, will introduce each teller to you. Following the storytelling, we will have an on-air interview of one of tonight's storytellers, so stay tuned for that as well. But first, for the stories, let's welcome Pat Spaulding here to introduce our first teller to you. Pat. Thanks, Amy. Uh, just a special note, I will be interviewing Kathy Boss as, at the end of these storytelling, and she has uh, just returned from a well, not just, but recently, over the past year, returned from uh, walking that Camino de Santiago. 500 miles. Do you call it a trail or a pilgrimage? Pilgrimage. pilgrimage. She'll be speaking later on. First off with her story and then the interview. But our first story tonight is going to be by Dane Peters. He lives with his wife, Chris, in Greenland, New Hampshire, and a long, long time ago, he ran two schools, spending most of his career in middle school education. Dane still consults with schools throughout the U.S. and has written more than 100 articles in many different publications about his experiences in education. Now we should stand closer to this. <laughs> kind of forgot about the microphone. All righty then. Um, he is currently the vice president of the Seacoast Repertory Theater and a member of Senior Moments, an acting troupe for senior citizens. In his classrooms, Dane tried to create a family-like environment where teacher and students got to know and depend upon each other pretty fast. Ideally, there was a consistent give and take. But sometimes, ideals were tossed out the window, especially when working with tweens. So says Dane. He'll tell us more about that in his story, setting a family environment in schools. Come on up, Dane. It's nice to be here with you. Uh, and of sorts, a family, uh, True Tales family. But I was very fortunate as a child to have a wonderful mom and dad who took good care of their family and instilled within me and my brother what family is all about. And I knew in my sophomore year in college where I was an elementary education major and a math minor that I wanted to perpetuate family within a school environment. I wanted to be a teacher. And I was on my way to do that when all of a sudden, in the, probably in the middle of my sophomore year, I became enamored with flying. I wanted to be a pilot. And I wanted it so badly that, uh, without telling my parents, I went out and got my pilot's license on my own, all $1,500 worth back in 1967. And all of a sudden, I decided, you know, I want to do this for a living. I want to be a pilot. 
And, but I can't afford some fancy flight school down in Florida where it costs a lot of money. And I'm thinking, thinking, all of a sudden it hits me. I know where I can get my pilot's, commercial pilot's license, and they'll pay me for it. What are you thinking? <laughs> I went to the Marine Corps recruiter, and he said, sure, you can be a pilot in the Marine Corps. And this is 67? Well, I wasn't thinking about that. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a pilot. So, in fact, um, when I graduated college, I was commissioned a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And then, at the same time, met my beautiful wife, Chris, and we got married. And after my basic training, went down to Pensacola, Florida to start flight school. Well, before I could even start, the flight surgeon, you, you have to go through a physical, the flight surgeon sees me and he says, uh, Lieutenant, you can't be a pilot because your eyes are 20-40. They need to be 20-20. And I said, really? They said I could, said, you're going to have to talk to your commanding officer. So in fact, I did. And he said, no, the, the, what we can do is have you sit in the back seat of an F-4. It's not a pilot, but your other choice is to go into the infantry. That's not a choice. <laughs> so for five years, I was a guy who sat in the back seat of an F-4. And during that time, I was convinced I do want to be a teacher. <laughs> so in fact, I left the Marine Corps, and that in of itself was a beautiful family. It still is. It's still very close to my heart, having been uh, a Marine for five years. So we moved back to Connecticut, where we both grew up, my wife and I, and by this time we had a year and a half old son. And so it's 1975, and I'm ready to find that job. But in 1975, the market was saturated. You couldn't find a job in public schools for love nor money. Well, I bumped into a guy who was a guy, a recruiter for private schools. And we hit it off, and we had a great conversation. And uh, he said, I, not, it's August, so you know all the schools have done their hiring by now. But let's, let's just stay in touch. Well, what happened was two weeks go by, and he gives me a call. And he says, Dane, there's a school in Connecticut that's looking for a, a teacher. And I said, oh, great. What happened? He said, well, the nurse just left. I said, nurse? I can't be a nurse. He said, just go. And you never know what's going to happen. Well, in fact, I went and I hit it off with the head of school, the headmaster, and he hired me. He's assigned me five different classes, coached three sports, and run a dormitory with four seventh grade girls. This was a boarding school, if you can believe this, a boarding school that boarded kindergarten through ninth grade. This is in Connecticut. And it was co-ed. So all of a sudden, I wasn't just thinking of a classroom family, but I was thinking of a family on the athletic field. I was thinking of a family in a dormitory. And thank God I had Chris because she helped me with that. It's one thing to be a tween, but the first time you're working with them, it's, it's a shock because the only time you remember was when I was a tween. So anyway, first year goes by, and the headmaster calls me and says, Dane, I'd like you to change jobs. I'd like you to go to the dormitory up on top of the hill. It's 23 girls, fifth grade through ninth grade, and run that dorm with another dorm master. I said, uh, yeah, oh, okay. And it was an even tighter family in terms of working with kids now, fifth grade through ninth grade. But the one I want to focus in on, the family I want to focus in on is my fifth grade class, my academic family. I adored this class. And, well, except for Cooper. Cooper was a fifth grader. He was all boy. He was really bright but he was a nudge. He knew how to get under my skin. And just as an example, we're, we had a class. I was, the lesson I was going to teach was palindromes. If you're not familiar with palindromes, palindromes 
are numbers that go from front uh, from left to right, right to left, same thing. So one, two, three, two, one is a palindrome. I'm in class and I'm telling the kids the same thing. And I said, can anyone give me an example of a, of a palindrome, a number? And several kids raised their hands, one, two, one, five, six, five. I said, beautiful, those are palindromes. Well, come to find out, palindromes also work with words. And I said, for example, like radar is a palindrome, same left to right, right to left. And then race car is a palindrome. And the kids were really intrigued now. They're, you could see their eyes just thinking. And let me just, as an aside, these year, this year, the fifth grade year is the most beautiful year in education because the kids still love their teacher <laughs> at the beginning of the year. Then all of a sudden, the girls start morphing into something different and they're pushing away and they don't want to have anything to do with you, basically. But the boys are still picking their nose and they're thinking about video games. Well, not back then. That was 1970s, whatever. They're just being boys. So we're learning about palindromes. And I asked the class and I said, so can anybody come up with a palindrome that's a word? And a little girl in the back, Lisa, raises her hand. And I said, yes, Lisa. She said, Otto? Is Otto a palindrome? I said, absolutely. Come write it on the board. And she wrote it on the board. And then uh, there's Cooper in the back of the room waving his hand wildly. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, do I call on him or just, just... No, you got it, Dan. Come on. He's a bright kid, and he deserves the same in our family. And he said, Mr. Peters, go hang a salami. I'm a lasagna hog. <laughs> I said, Cooper, that's not appropriate. We're, we're trying to learn something. Mr. Peters, go hang a salami. I'm a lasagna hog. And, and I just was blown away. I said, Cooper, why don't you come write it up on the board, knowing that he couldn't even spell lasagna. He gets up at the board and he starts writing, and I go, oh, my gosh, it's a palindrome. <laughs> the kid came up with this palindrome that's this long sentence and the kids are having a lot of fun because Cooper got one on the teacher and we we're going back and forth then the bell rings and it, it's time the kids are leaving Cooper slinks his way up to the front of the class and he says to me Mr. Peters I'm sorry I, I didn't mean to embarrass you but it's just something that I knew um, that was in a, a palindrome I said oh that's okay Cooper and he said, I'll see you. By the way, Mr. Peters, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. <laughs> and he walks away. <laughs> That's when I really just embraced the classroom as a family. It just, it's just beautiful to be with children. I did it for four years and was just blessed. And I'll leave you with one thing, how important families are, but I'll leave you with one thing. The people who are the head of the family in, in most traditional families are a mom and a dad. Two palindromes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dane. Now, I know I'm curious. Maybe other people here are curious. Did he actually make those up, or did he read those palindromes? Someplace, oh, he or... must have learned it somewhere because at some point along the way I said, how did you know that? And he said, oh, I just was interested in it. But he was a very bright, precocious child. Yeah, that's, that's pretty outstanding. What a surprise. <laughs> Next up, we have Judith Rubenstein. She grew up in the Long Island Sound in Connecticut, brought up her own family in Dover, New Hampshire, moved to Portsmouth, and now she can't imagine living anywhere other than on the New England seacoast. For four de decades, but who's counting? She has earned her living as a senior editorial manager, writer, and editor. When not at work or enjoying time with her two adult daughters and son-in-law, she's walking around Portsmouth, doing yoga, volunteering on the gundalow, the good life, or working on the board of directors for Arts and Reach and New Hampshire Theatre Project. Judith likes to be busy. In this, her first public storytelling, 
She recalls family connections that sometimes eluded her and an unexpected yet unexpectedly warm memory in her story, Good Fortune. Come on up, Judith. My mother was not a warm and cuddly person. She was competent, smart, and intellectual. For example, she was the one I would go to for help if I was stuck on a school project. She was the one I would go to if I needed help adjusting my bicycle seat. Plus, she was pretty serious. She wasn't humorless, but humor was not an ingrained part of her personality. And she absolutely did not get goofiness. <laughs> if my father and I or my brothers and I were silly and horsing around, my mother would have this not really amused half smile on her face and her trademark expression of skepticism, which was one raised eyebrow. I used to stand in front of the mirror and try to make my face do that. My father was the heartbeat of the family. He was warm, affectionate, curious, concerned, engaged. I may be making him sound ideal. He might have been that good. <laughs> he would have been a wonderful grandfather. Unfortunately, he died when my two daughters were one and four years old. That left my mother as the single grandparent on my side of the family. Contrast this with my husband's parents, who not only lived near us up here in New Hampshire, but were the definition of doting grandparents, indulgent to the point of spoiling, attentive. They really never took their attention away from the kids if they were together. So my kids spent a lot of time with this, these very doting grandparents, and on the other hand, saw my mother in Connecticut about four hours away, much less frequently. I kind of had a chip on my shoulder. I wished for my, grand, for my father to be around, to be a grandfather to my kids, and I wished for my mother to somehow shed this impenetrable, impenetrable reserve that separated her from me and, I thought, from my children. My mother did have a master stroke when it came to her family. For several years, every summer, she would host a whole bunch of her grandchildren for a week of Camp Savta. And Savta is Hebrew for grandmother. Now, one thing we did know about my mother was that she loved summer camp. She was athletic, unlike my father, my brothers, and I. And she loved the activities and the challenge and the rigor and the structure of summer camp. So she created this Camp Savta for my kids and some of their cousins to give that some of them experience some of that experience. They would come to her house. They lived in dormitory style. They had a schedule. She woke them up with reveille. She put them to bed with taps. She really did. They had chores. They had a schedule. And my mother was fortunate enough to have a bunch of friends with swimming pools, so they had swimming lessons every day. We had a very close friend who was a professional artist. They went to the art studio and completed a project in the week they were there. They went on nature walks. They took a field trip. They even put on an end-of-camp show. <laughs> now, my younger daughter was four or five the first summer she went to Camp Savta. And one night, as my mother was putting her to bed, Hannah said, I miss my mommy. And here was my mother's moment, right? Her opportunity. And she said, well, she's not here right now. <laughs> she's not here right now? You don't have to be the most sensitive person in the world to come up with something better than that. It could be as simple as, I know you do. It could be as simple as, well, I'm sure she misses you too, honey. No. She's not here right now. <laughs> This is now a family joke. We use it all the time. I wish we had some ice cream in the freezer. Well, that's not here right now. <laughs> well, the result of Camp Savta was that my kids and their cousins became very close. 
and they have a very deep bond. The relationship with my mother, however, was one of respect and appreciation, but still not closeness. Camp Savta came to an end as the kids got older. My mother was, above all, helpful. So for several summers, even after Camp Savta ended, she had my kids down for a week to give me and my husband a break, even though we were still at work, just to have a break. So I would drive the kids down on the weekend, stay overnight, drive back, work the week, and come back the following Saturday. So one year, I was down to pick up the girls, and they might have been nine and 12. And we went out to dinner that night while I was staying over. We went to a favorite Chinese restaurant. One thing we all had in common was our appreciation of food. And as we sat down with our menus, the waiter came over and very carefully placed a teapot in front of me on the table. And he said, be very careful. We just poured this into the pot. It's boiling hot. And the porcelain pot itself is very hot, so make sure you only touch the handle. I'm a rule follower. I very, very carefully reached over and grasped the handle, one of those curved wooden handles with a bamboo or something twined around it. It's attached to the teapot with two metal hooks. I grasp the handle and lift it very carefully, and the teapot falls off the handle onto the table. Well, I must have reared back because I got splashed all over my stomach with boiling water. It's on the table, it's on me, it's on my clothes, and of course my mother and the girls are like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Everybody's kind of flustered and grabbing napkins. I'm not a screamer, I'm not a crier, I froze. I just sat there for a moment. And then the hubbub got to be too much for me, and I said, I'm... I'm going into the ladies' room. I'm fine. Don't come with me. Stay here. I'll be right back. Go into the ladies' room, soak some paper towels with cold water, place it on my abdomen until the first intensity subsided. Well, I steal myself. I go back out. Everybody's all at Twitter. I'm like, I'm fine. Oh, should we leave? Are you kidding? I want my Chinese food. So I get an ice pack, and I'm sitting back in my chair with the ice pack tucked inside the waistband of my jeans, sort of leaning, you know, leaning over with it very awkwardly to get my food into my mouth without in this awkward position. We get through the dinner. I hear all about the week's activities. And comes time for the check. Well, of course, with the check, we get our fortune cookies. My mother makes this gracious gesture after you. So I begin. I open my fortune cookie And I pull out the slip of paper, and I read something like, the man at the top of the mountain did not fall there. (laughs) (laughs) And then Ruthie opens her fortune, cracks the cookie, pulls out the slip of paper, and reads something like, to be happier, eat more Chinese food. (laughs) And then Hannah cracks open her cookie, pulls out the slip of paper, and reads her fortune, an unexpected opportunity will lead to new adventures. So my mother now cracks open her fortune cookie, pulls out the slip of paper, looks up and says, when dining in Chinese restaurant, watch out for teapot. You could have knocked us over with a feather. (laughs) We laughed so hard. We were leaning on the table. I mean, we laughed continually for several minutes. We caused quite a stir. I had never seen my mother even laugh like that. Well, we were feeling pretty good, despite the burn. Had a nice evening. The next day, I packed up my kids back to New Hampshire Several years after that, my mother began to have dementia, so she became even more remote. But I realized, with that fortune, my mother had given us the warmest of memories. Thank you.
thank you, Judith. That is definitely one of the warmest of memories. <laughs> Next up, Michael Lang. He lives in Durham, New Hampshire, is a writer, musician, and storyteller who has told stories on several of our True Tales live programs. Mike is one of our ringers. <laughs> For nearly a decade, he worked as an outdoor educator, leading ropes course programs and wilderness trips. That's a lot to say, ropes course programs and wilderness trips. Um, he now runs his own small business, the Coyotes Inkwell, entertaining and educating audiences of all ages with folk tales, fables, legends, and laughter. Tonight, Mike will share his story of going through a kidney transplant in 2007 and the special gratitude he felt for his family. Come on up, Mike. The minute I say I'm good, I trip over the stool. <laughs> it's time to go. The moment had finally arrived. It had been hanging overhead all morning, kind of like the gray clouds outside the window. For nearly half an hour, I'd been sitting on the couch playing the same two chords on my dad's old famous guitar. Somehow, the sound of those steel strings made the world seem a little smaller and a little safer. But it was finally time to go. Time for us all to climb into the car and head down the familiar road to Beth Israel Hospital in Boston and whatever the future might hold. I was 14 when my kidney disorder was discovered by accident. A routine blood test had come back with some very unroutine results. And the next thing I knew, I was having an ultrasound. If you've never had one, they're a little uncomfortable, especially if you're sensitive to cold goo being put on your belly and people got a rolling pin all over you. <clears throat> I was trying to hold still, but was failing miserably. After several more tests, the doctors finally explained that my kidneys were working at about half strength, and it was possible that someday I might need a transplant. At the time, I didn't really think about that. I thought, eh. I'll be old when that happens, you know, like 60 or 50 or something. I was 14. When you're a teenager, 30 is old. It turned out I was wrong. I wasn't old. I wasn't 60 or even 50. I was 24 when it happened. In January of 2007, one of my routine doctor's appointments, my doctor told me it's, it's finally time to talk about the options for the future. In an ideal world, we'd find a live donor. Well, my mother immediately volunteered. And over the next several months, she went through a very, very rigorous battery of tests. Meanwhile, I went back to Minnesota, where I'd been working as a wilderness guide, and spent about four months leading canoeing trips all over the country. Unbeknownst to me, around mid-August, my mother was ruled out as a donor. I came home in early September to the news, and. You know, at the time, my thought was, okay, we have a large family. Maybe there's somebody else. Well, a week later, somebody else called. My older brother, Eric, called the next week. He said, hey, Mike, we have the same blood type. You know, I've been looking at all these tests. What do you think? Well, all I could say was thank you. I mean, what do you say to somebody who just offered to give you an organ? It didn't seem like quite enough, though, but it was all I could think of was thank you. The next two months passed like a whirlwind. And finally, that dreary day in November arrived when it was time to head down to the hospital for the big day. It was hard to believe that just two days before that, we'd gone on a nine-mile hike in the White Mountains together. And here I was going in for a kidney transplant. Something didn't quite seem right here. I thought maybe... Shouldn't I feel sick and like be in bed if I'm like this? But there I was, heading into the hospital. My whole family was there, not just Eric, but our oldest brother, Jeff, his wife, Jamie, both our parents, Eric's girlfriend, and a couple of our family friends, neighbors, who we'd known for most of our lives. Everyone was there. 
It was finally my turn to get wheeled back to pre-surgery. And, you know, really the last thing I remember as I was laying on the metal operating table and the mask was coming down over my face is, is it too late to change my mind? <laughs> when I woke up, I was surrounded by blue curtains in this corner of the recovery room. There were tubes coming out of me, some of them coming out of places I had hoped never, ever to have a tube coming out of me. <laughs> my oldest brother, Jeff, and his wife were there. I don't really remember what we talked about, but I do remember that they had a message from Eric. They told us to tell you, Eric wants the kidney back. <laughs> and that's really the best way to describe that week in the hospital. The, the anecdotes could feel volumes, but really it was all a lot of medical stuff happening around us, my family there for every step of the journey, and our own sometimes twisted sense of humor, like when we were playing poker in my room and the nurse came in with a pitcher of water and we asked if she could bring it back with beer. Or when somehow Eric had ended up on his chart with needs help feeding. I'm not really sure how that one happened. I had nothing to do with it. But many mornings his breakfast sat out in the nurse's station getting cold. One particular morning he complained that he only had one link of sausage. Who gives you one link of sausage? Did someone eat my breakfast? It was Saturday, the Saturday before Thanksgiving when I was finally released from the hospital. And I do mean released. I was ready to go long before then. That seems to be the way of everybody who's ever spent time in a hospital. I'm ready to go, but the paperwork's not in order. That following week, having family around, led up to Thanksgiving. And ever since then, that holiday's meant a little something different. Never really know why everything worked out so perfectly for us. When I was in the hospital, I was walking around the day after surgery feeling great. Other than the tubes that were still attached to me and the IV stand I had to wheel everywhere and this thing in my neck that made me kind of feel like Frankenstein. But as I walked past other rooms, there were people who had been on dialysis for years. There were people who were facing rejection issues. Why did it work for me? What's so special about me? I, I don't deserve this. So ever since then, Thanksgiving's meant a little bit more. And my family's own brand of humor around the table. I don't remember the joke that prompted it, but it was a good five minutes of laughing over something silly and foolish that resulted in Eric seeping a little goo out of one of his sutures. And so I must say, if laughter is truly the best medicine of all, like all medicine, it should only be taken in prescribed dosages. <laughs> but saying thank you was really all that I could say throughout all of this, and ever since. So, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thank you to you. Why did it work for you, you asked? So you could tell us stories like this. <laughs> Next up, we have Kathy Boss. She was born in Australia to American parents, raised in both Canada and the U.S., and after all that moving about as a child, she has made New Hampshire her chosen home for nearly 20 years, but she hasn't exactly stayed still that whole time. With the youngest of her three sons off to college, Kathy recently spent 10 weeks in Europe, taking 39 of those days to walk the Camino Francais, is that how you pronounce it? The Camino Francais, a 500-mile pilgrimage to Santiago, Spain. No matter where she goes, Kathy still thinks that for beauty, New England beats them all. She is a writer, storyteller, mother, teacher, and community organizer. A homebody who cannot seem to shake the travel bug and stay home. <laughs> Kathy's story involving families, a pilgrimage, motherhood, diabetes, and chasing demons across the north of Spain is titled Demons, a Family Affair. <laughs> Come on up, Kathy.
So I had one. My 24-year-old son and I were racing down dark country roads towards the nearest hospital. It was Thanksgiving weekend, and it was the first time that my three sons and I had been together since I returned from a 10-week trip to Europe and from walking the Camino Frances, which is a 500-mile pilgrimage that starts in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port and goes over the Pyrenees and then meanders through the north of Spain to Santiago. You walk it with your backpack, your hiking boots, and that's about it. The reason that I had chosen to go on the Camino was because my youngest son had gone off to college that fall, and I, after sort of parenting for 25 years and being a single parent for 10 of those years, I was looking for a time where I could step back, take a break, and figure out where I wanted to go next. But as any of you out there know who have grown children, parenthood doesn't end when your children grow up. It just shifts. And that night, as I watched my son, this tall, six-foot, strong, beautiful boy, man, sorry, grapple with his biggest demon that had fallen into his lap six years before during his freshman year of college, Thanksgiving break, when he'd found out that he had type 1 diabetes, something that hadn't shown up in our family ever before. That, um, those demons that are with our children, with us, they become a family affair. They're not something that they can have by themselves, nor are, you know, those quiet moments or your personalities or whatever demons you hold inside of us. And that was one that was really, really visible, obviously, with Jonathan. His blood sugar had shot through the roof, and I wanted to go to the hospital and have him taken care of there, and he wanted to stay home and grapple with his demon at home. So a lot of the reason that people travel the Camino is because they're grappling with demons. And whether you're, for whatever reason, you're on the Camino, even if it's just to do a 500-mile hike or a 100-mile hike or a 200-mile hike, one thing that happens on the Camino is that your demons and your angels come with you. There's nothing you can do about that. No matter how much you think you've worked on them, they're there with you. And I think that's part of the reason that if anybody has seen the movie The Way, you've heard of the idea of the Camino family, right? So I think it's partly that, that you bring your demons, you bring this sense of rawness to the experience, and so you end up bonding really well with people. Well, I kind of brought my demon, which is perfectionism. So, <laughs> so I walked up to that first... Uh, Alberg, they call it, which is a hostel where people sleep between eight to a room to a hundred to a room. And I was like, okay, so who's my family going to be? You know? And then I'm like, so the, you know, walk the next day and the next day and the next day. I'm like, okay, so is it going to be the South African expat who lives in Australia who told me his story about his his son who died in Japan? on an exchange, and whose tears mixed with the rain. Is he going to be my family? Or is it that kid who, when my feet were all blistered, sat down with me late at night and put play foam in between my toes, (laughs) cut them out meticulously, and cried about the fact that he didn't feel either Spanish like his parents or Venezuelan like where he grew up, and he didn't know what his identity was? Was it the parole officer who was trying to figure out how she fit in with a very male-dominated industry? Who was going to be my family? And if I ate with this one, then I felt bad about not eating with that one. And if I was walking with those, then I felt bad about not walking. And so I kind of walked by myself. And then the end of the first week, I just stayed in my bed and I cried because it was too much. 
It was too many people. It was too many demons. It was too much of my need to be affirmed. In that early, in that evening, with Jonathan, I still had that. It wasn't like the 500 miles of walking had exercised that for me. And I so wanted to be a good mother to him. And I had to hold back everything in me from pushing him and ordering him and instead just support him and just listen to him and just put my arm around him as he grappled with this thing for six years that had been under control. Six years where he'd managed it really well and all of a sudden this night his blood sugar went so high that his monitor that monitors the sugar in his blood didn't even have a number on it. It was terrifying. And the biggest problem is because he wears a pump, we don't know how much insulin he'd gotten. And with a diabetic, if you get too much insulin, you go into a coma. So yeah, I wanted to go to the hospital. I wanted to pick that demon up, that diabetes, and I wanted to like choke it, and I wanted to throw it on the floor, and I wanted to scream at it, and I wanted to to trounce on it and make it go away and leave my son alone. And he just stayed calm. He was upset, but he was calm. That sense of trying to get rid of the demons was with me when I was walking. That need to be in control was with me, And I don't know if any of you have discovered what a blistering pace is, but I did. (laughs) One day as I walked the Camino, I sort of left this group of people because I'd finally gotten to the point where I just said, I need to just separate from all of the people, from trying to figure out who I'm with, and separate from all of these thoughts about being a mother or nurturing people or helping that person or doing any of this kind of role that I'm so used to playing and I need to just walk. And I walked so fast and I had these little voices in my head. I'm sure many of you heard them. Well, you should have said this and oh, that little, that's just, how could she have done that to you? You know, all this like going around and repeating scenes from my childhood and repeating scenes from work and repeating scenes from my kids and just walking and walking 10 miles 12 miles, 14 miles, really, really fast to the point that your feet are numb. And then stopping and looking at my feet. (laughs) And there was a blister that was about three inches long and an inch wide on the bottom of my foot. (laughs) So that was not good. As we were driving to the hospital, there was something about that forward movement for Jonathan, I think, that pace of having made a decision and having begun to move through space that calmed something in him, I was terrified. And here is this 24-year-old young man who is, you can see his mind working, and I can see this little stupid demon diabetes like there with him, and I just trying to stay calm and not panic. You know the panic that you have as a parent that you don't show your kid? but it's totally there. I had that. He couldn't see it, but I could feel it. And this demon was trouncing around on his head, and as we were getting closer and closer, something came over my son that's very similar to something that I started to see on the Camino with people, and that was acceptance. It was like, okay, this may not have happened for a long time, and now you're acting up, and it's the first time you've acted up in a long time you little bucko, right? But you know what? You're still the same thing. And I still know you. And I've still lived with you for six years. So I know what I need to do because I've been doing this for a long time. And he turns to me and he says, Mom, we're about a half a mile from the hospital. He says, Mom, I don't want to go to the hospital. I want to go home. And I was like, okay. How will we do it? And he gives me his plan. And we head home. It's dark. (laughs) We're heading home, midnight. But he's incredibly calm. The middle of the Camino is the Meseta. It's flat. It's even. You know where you're going. 
people are quiet. It even, it, a lot of people don't walk that part, so there's way fewer people. It's beautiful. You start not feeling your body. You don't think about anything. You just feel your body. And it wasn't until after I walked that part of the Camino that I actually started to have my family that I actually started to find the people that I was going to connect with because at that point I was in my body and those demons were in my, had been accepted into me. And as I watched Jonathan that night, I had been thinking the whole time I walked the Camino, well, you know, yes, that kid with cerebral palsy, he's doing it because he has this big group of people. Yes, that Vietnam vet is with PTSD is doing it and having to go back and get, you know, he keeps forgetting things and having to go back and get things, but he's managing. Or the, the man who's blind and is walking with his seeing eye dog, yeah, they can all do it, but it's not something Jonathan would ever be able to do because of his diabetes. But you know what? That night we woke up every hour and we tested his blood sugar and by the next morning, his blood sugar was fine. It, had, it would, had evened out. He had accepted it. He had said, this is what I need to do. And like those people on the Camino walking with their demons, he had tamed it. Thank you. Thanks, Kathy. We'll hear a little more about Kathy's experience um, during the interview if you want to stay for that. Oh, demons. <laughs> and last up, we have Sharon Jones. Sharon grew up right here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where she was raised in a close-knit family of 13 children. <laughs> She's currently writing a book about that experience. Recently honored in a special ceremony by the Black Heritage Association for her service and excellence as an entertainer and mentor, Sharon unveiled the Ella Fitzgerald postage stamp. The Portsmouth Herald accurately named her a Portsmouth gem. <laughs> she is indeed. In her youth, she moved to Los Angeles to study voice and became an accomplished singer who toured with legendary jazz artists all across the country. Now she performs throughout New England where you can catch her act right here in Portsmouth at Demeter's Steakhouse, the Dolphin Striker, the Press Room, or at Rudy's, or in Boston at the Beehive and the Beat Hotel. Sharon is a singer, a vocal coach, and now a storyteller who will tell us her story titled, We'll Catch Up Soon. Sharon? <laughs> there she is. <laughs> My father used to say things like, show up when you're supposed to show up. If you're angry, take a few moments before you speak because your tongue is like a sword. Say I love you. People never get tired of hearing that. Say it often. Stay close to one another and no protocol, and you'll never make a fool of yourself. Sundays in our big house was amazing. My father was a tall man with a soothing voice that you wanted to listen to all day long. I thought he was a celebrity. <laughs> When he walked into a room, he was tall and articulate, and he had a walk about him. On Sundays, we had special times in our house, and my father would come into the kitchen where my mother would be cooking the big Sunday meal Every meal in my house was wonderful, but on Sunday it was special. You could smell the aroma of 
the roast going through the house and the string beans and the applesauce and the other little things that she made that was special. But my younger sister and I, of 13 children, we were the ones that clung to my mother. It was like she had little pieces of Velcro stuck to her legs. <laughs> so my father would come into the kitchen and whisk us off into the living room. And then he'd sit us down in front of this big mahogany radio where he'd fidget around until he found the station he wanted. And it was always either, as he would say, either Louis Armstrong or Ella Fitzgerald. And then he'd explain to us how important it was to pay respect when someone was speaking or performing. This particular night, he was fidgeting around with the dial and happened to run across Al Jolson. I don't know if I thought at that time we'd ever see that radio again. I thought it would be used as firewood because he hated Al Jolson. <laughs> well, after the jazz on the radio, my mother would send one of the older children into the living room to dinner time, and we'd all go into the big dinner table in the house and sit and have dinner. After dinner, though, that was the big deal. Jazz musicians would come to our house on a Sunday afternoon after dinner. They'd walk up those steps and you'd open that big door that led into the living room and there'd be 14 or 15 musicians that would come in and play music in our house. And they'd have food and drinks and play and then more food and play some more. And I was only about five years old, and I was taking it all in because I knew I was going to be a star when I grew up. <laughs> One of the things I noticed, though, mostly was that after the music ended, they would talk amongst themselves. Wasn't that great? Let's learn a new song for the next time. They'd play tunes by Cole Porter and Rogers and Hart, all the wonderful songs that were written. But the thing I noticed most was the conversation after. Let's catch up again. Let's do this again. You know, back then, we didn't have the internet or these cell phones or the Twitter or all of that <laughs> foolishness, you know. And we spoke to each other, and we felt each other. And I noticed them doing the same thing that night. Let's catch up again, and let's do this again. And as they would all leave that night, I would lie there in bed and, 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 and go over the whole thing in my head, how wonderful it was to have that music lingering in the air after they left. And I thought to myself, how important it is, that glance, that touch, that tap on the shoulder, that conversation on one-to-one, -one, that I love you, that let's catch up. Let, let's, how many times have we said to a friend, let's have coffee next week. Let's go out for lunch. Through this timeline in which I've traveled, I've learned and I've, I've come to understand how important it is to reveal who you really are. And it's okay to hug and share expression and love. I miss that, that I grew up with. I've also experienced, though, the tragedy of not doing those things, of losing some best friend or a family member because 
I didn't get there in time. And so what I do now is I make a list of the people that I need to, to be in touch with. And I make them as much as a priority as the other things in my life. I'll call them one a week. Let's catch up. Let's have some coffee. It makes all the difference in the world, that touch, that glance. And <clears throat> life is, can be pretty nice when you do those things. I find that we as people, like Barbara Streisand used to say, we're the luckiest people in the world with one person, one very special person, or all of those persons that affect your life. And certainly I've had so many affect mine. And I'm grateful. And I'm thankful. Thank you. Thanks for those lovely words, Sharon. Nice bookend to Catherine Tucker Wyndham's beautiful opening statements. Thanks to all of tonight's wonderful storytellers and to our fabulous studio audience that really makes this extra special here. Give yourselves a round of applause. We're really grateful you come out for this. So coming up next, there will be an interview of Kathy Boss, but first I have a few bits of information to convey to you. True Tales Live will be back on June 27th with a theme of tipping points, which last I heard still has room for more storytellers. So email us at truetaleslive1 at gmail.com if you would like one of those slots or if you're interested in our fall lineup, joining our fall lineup. Um, if you would like to tell a story here at True Tales Live but aren't really sure of yourself or want some help with your piece, we do offer monthly storytelling workshops. They're held here at PPM TV, 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth. They're the first Tuesday of the month, 7.30 to 9. And they're free, open to the public. The next one is June 6. They're led by myself, Pat, and David. So we invite you to come and join us. So, I want to remind you or tell you to remember that True Tales Live is taking a summer break this year. July and August, we will not have either shows or workshops. So don't come those times because it will be disappointing. We don't want to stand you up like that. So here's our, your reminder for that. But still in June and then starting up again in September, we will be here, PPM TV, last Tuesday of the month, 6.30 to 8.00 and in front of a live studio audience, which everyone is invited to come and be part of. The show airs on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m., and is available as video on demand, demand anytime at youtube.com. You need to search for PPMTV True Tales Live. We will make that easier in the future. We're working on that. Um, and we're available at both those places all summer long. So I want to give you your first heads up, save the date, for two special performances we'll be doing in the fall. True Tales Live on stage will be at the West End Studio Theater in Portsmouth for Act One's Beyond Festival. This is our third year in a row there. And this year our two shows are Sundays, September 3rd, and October 1st, both at 2 p.m. There'll be more info coming for you soon, but that's your first heads up about that. Let's give some thanks to some folks who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. Until our next True Tales live show, on behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening. 
Do stay tuned. We're going to go now to Pat Spaulding for our Kathy Boss interview. Thank you.